Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. I am delighted to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to works by women artists. The Levitt Collection's support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAM, F-A-M-M, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mujan, near Cannes, in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe, dedicated solely to female artists, and will exhibit a myriad of artworks from the collection, from the Impressionists to Surrealism, plus modern and contemporary art. It's opening next June, but in the meantime, stay tuned by following their Instagram, fam.mujan. All in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast for the second time is Dame Professor Marina Warner, one of the leading historians on this planet. A writer, lecturer, author of almost 40 books and former president of the Royal Society of Literature, Marina Warner, according to The New Yorker, is an authority on things that don't actually exist from magic spells, monstrous beasts to pregnant virgins. A world specialist on myths, fairy tales and stories from ancient times, Warner has written indefatigably for the last five decades on how these tales, some thousands of years old, still speak to our culture today and allow us to appreciate how they are shaped by the societies that tell them. I have poured over her books, from all alone of her sex, her study of the cult of the Virgin Mary, to my favourite, Monuments and Maidens, the allegory of the female form, that so pertinently looks at how women are represented as allegories, bringing about ideas of actual power versus perceived power. For example, while Lady Liberty might be ubiquitous, how much power does she, a woman, actually have? Warner's list of accolades is extensive. A distinguished fellow at All Souls College, Oxford, an honorary fellow at many more, the giver of BBC's Wreath Lectures in 1994, and awarded doctorates of 11 universities in Britain, such as King's, the Royal College of Art, Oxford University, and more. But it's stories and the power of imagination that fascinate her, and is what has led me to be so captivated by her work. She has written, Inside stories was the place I wanted to be, especially stories that went beyond any experience I could live myself at first hand. The very first stories I heard with saints' lives, the joyful, sorrowful and glorious mysteries of the Virgin Mary, the terrible gory violence of the martyrs' ends. When I first encountered myths and fairy tales, the wonder I felt was pure wonder, but as I have grown older, wonder has taken on its double aspect and become 
questioning too. And that is why I couldn't be more excited to be, instead of looking at a woman artist for this episode, investigating the representation of female figures that we see across history and art history, Eve and Lilith from the Bible and Medusa and Athena from mythology. Marina Warner, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for inviting me back. Great honour. Well, it's amazing. I should say for the audience, you are the first guest who's been on twice. So this is a real treat. This has been an issue that has been intriguing me for a really long time. Subjects of women in art history. Because on this podcast, we've looked at the makers. But I want to know about the figures who are so ubiquitous in painting sculptures, stories. Because like you said, the more we look, the more we should question. And actually, the more we question, the more we realise actually how much misogyny and sexism is within these stories. I want to get into these figures in a moment, but I'd just love to ask you first, why are you interested in myths and ancient stories? I think that I had a rather sheltered childhood because I went to a convent school, several convent schools, and it was a real boarding school. And we were saturated in the rituals and liturgy and also the calendar and these stories. And in a way, it was my reality or perhaps all our reality of all us children there. I mean, Catholic worship actually invites you to meditate strongly on what you're shown or what you're being told. So, for example, one of the rituals that we pursued every week was the Stations of the Cross, where you were actually invited to take part in Christ's passion and the sort of grief of the Virgin Mary when he's dying. And so there's a a sense of reenactment of active imagination reenacting these scenes in front of your eyes and you're in a way praised for the deeper you understand this. You remember that St. Francis has this stigmata. Well, several female saints also had stigmata. These are imitation of Christ's wounds that are inscribed on the body, but they are totally commended, absolutely held up as examples because their imagination was so strong as they identified and empathized with the sufferings of Jesus that it became part of their body, that they actually had the wounds marked on their flesh. So there's a kind of embodied imagination at the basis of Catholicism, which I think has been very helpful to me as a writer, though I deplore it as an encouragement to children. But anyway, it made me love the stories. And then as I grew up, I began to question the content of the stories. So I just enjoyed them. I empathized with them. I marveled at them. The supernatural has remained for me a kind of wonderful instrument of literature. I love fairy tales, but I also like contemporary novels that muse magical shifts or changes of tempo or time travelling. One of the critics I like was called Andre Holles. He wrote that the marvellous is the only guarantee that the reality of life can be stopped, You know, which is the idea that the supernatural breaks through to help you endure the experiences of life, the sufferings of life. But nevertheless, that's an aspect of imaginative inhabiting of another world that is useful. I think that that is extraordinary and it's something I want to get into later as well because what I find so interesting about Eve, who's a figure we're going to talk about, is how she was expelled from the Garden of Eden and actually what the real world allows for is that idea of imagination and that world of art, because in the Garden of Eden, everything is blissful and actually there is no need for imagination. And so in a way, it kind of comes full circle that we kind of live in that sort of Garden of Eden, in, in, in this idea of imagination in our head. I don't know, do, do you know what I mean? It's sort yeah, of uh, twofold. Yes I, yes, I do, absolutely. <laughs> and, and Voltaire being very wicked and very uh, irreverent 
and of course very, very anti-clerical, has a marvellously funny story, one of his last stories, called The White Bull, which is set in the Garden of Eden. And Satan appears and says, well, really, they should have been grateful. Life was so dull before. <laughs> they should have been grateful that I gave them knowledge. Exactly, exactly. So it's kind of great to exist, maybe on this sort of fine line between imagination and reality. Yes, I mean, obviously, I have wrestled with these problems all my life. There's a problem if you mistake imagination for reality. Actually, I've just read a book by Peter Brooks called Seduced by Story. Well, he's one of the great literary critics who first really put forward the idea of the importance of plot and narrative in a book 40 years ago called Reading for the Plot. But he's now recanted. He now says there's too much emphasis on story and too much emphasis on emotional responses to stories and how we must get back to objective reading. And he makes a distinction between the idea that homo narrans, the storytelling being that we are, human species, that is either given ontologically, i.e. that we exist as elements in a story, and then we move through this story ourselves. Or, which is obviously the position he favors, we use stories to understand the world. I can't quite see this as a distinction, because I believe, as I often do about such things, that it is both. We actually are constructed by stories. We need to be careful about that. We need the humanities and understanding and reading to appraise stories, to understand what they're doing to us, because we are moving in a narrative. We see this politically very strongly. But I also think that we can leverage stories to work for us. And really that's what artists are doing. Visual artists, literary artists, musicians, they are looking at the material that we come framed by and they are giving it another inflection. So in the case of Eve, this has happened over several thousand years now, she has been re-inflected by a lot of thinking in the sense that she was seen as the gateway of the devil, the dreadful, wicked woman who had betrayed humanity, given Adam the apple to eat, that he was quite right when he said to God, it's her fault, she gave it to me to eat. People thought Adam is an upstanding fellow. This dreadful, unruly woman, typical of all womankind, behaved like this and perverted him and lost us salvation and bliss and paradise. Well, gradually, that has now, really, a lot of poems and paintings have seen Eve as the actual gateway of knowledge. She's the one who doesn't acquiesce to this idea that there's a ban on them knowing the difference between good and evil, or there's a ban on why should they not enjoy eternal life. She's the spirit, if you like, of the Enlightenment, the spirit of rebellion and desire and freedom. I mean, there's vestiges of it early on in some sort of early poems and things, but in feminist art now, it's very strong indeed. This idea that Eve is the first mother and the source of human beings' freedom. Completely. I mean, that that is so utterly fascinating. And I think it's actually this idea of reframing narratives, because I think we've always been sort of sold this single story about her, this idea that when we read her in Genesis or something, it reads, you know, this at last is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. This is to be called woman for this was taken from man. This idea that Eve was actually created from Adam's rib. Yes. It gives the rise to the phrase spare rib. Yes. Which, which was used in one of the early feminist magazines, which is a very interesting use of that, you know, re-seizing, reshaping some derogatory comment. In the case of Eve, there's been a lot of work on the actual texts of the Bible. There are two stories. They run parallel. And they seem to be the same story, but they're not. There are two writers. They've now been identified. 
in the first story, male and female created he them. The human beings that God first makes are double gendered. So there's an equality between them. Then the next writer comes along and tacks on another version of the story in which, as you just said, she's secondary. She's made from Adam. And that was emphasized far beyond male and female created he them. It was emphasized that she was secondary, that she was subordinate, that she had lost paradise and he's punished by working in the sweat of his face and she's punished by bearing children in pain. And this, of course, when I was a girl, was called the curse, the curse of Eve. And so menstruation, that's what we called it. You didn't, you're looking at me astonished. <laughs> you I, did, I didn't know. You never heard this phrase, yeah. the curse. We used to roar with laughter at the Lady of Shalott. The curse has come upon me, so she cried. <laughs> <laughs> so we called it the curse because it was the curse of Eve. It was the part of her condemnation, her punishment to bear children in pain and sorrow and therefore menstruation. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That is absolutely fascinating. I, actually, menstruation also was a taboo that was lifted during the 60s and 70s. A poet called Penelope Shuttle wrote a book called The Wise Wound, which caused a tremendous sensation. But I think it was really a pioneering book about menstruation. It had never been discussed before in, in sort of, as it were, formal public. And now it's much more, people are much more open about it. Yes, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but it's still not a mainstream subject that people address at all. I, d I think the, a little bit of the stigma has, I think people don't feel the same shame. But this idea of shame, I think, is so interesting. I mean, how do you think that the story of Eve has almost sort of influenced the shame that women feel? Very, very powerfully. She makes a diptych with Mary, because Mary was known as the second Eve. They even made a pun of that Eva prima ave. So Eva, her name, Eve, before ave, the, what the angel Gabriel says to Mary, that when she reverses the curse on her humanity, and by announcing the birth of the saviour to a virgin. And so they were seen as a diptych, but both of them defined women as the culprits. Eve was the actual culprit, the guilty party, directly by her act of disobedience and eating the apple. Mary was also part of that nexus of that argument because she was the only one, the only woman to escape the general stigma because she was a virgin, she was pure, she was not touched by the grim facts of sexuality in Catholic doctrine. She also bore Jesus without pain. She had no pangs of childbirth. In fact, St. Bridget of Sweden, who saw visions of Mary giving birth, rather beautiful visions she wrote, they were written down, she um, nevertheless saw Jesus passing like a sunbeam through Mary's body. That was the ideal. That you shouldn't be corporeal. You shouldn't bear the stain of fleshliness. These are very, very old ideas, and they're not necessarily Christian. I mean, there was a strong movement in Hellenic Europe for bodily chastisement, chastity, anti-sex, and the Christianity grew out of that rather than Christianity imposed it. Christianity had this extraordinary success at the beginning because it recruited many, many virgins, deplored marriage. It said it was a higher state to remain chaste, and these were rich women, rich heiresses in Rome, who were mostly converted by St. Jerome, and they left all their money to the early church. So that was one of the ways that, I'm not the only person to have said this, I mean, one of the ways that the church established itself was by actually denouncing marriage because it accumulated the wealth of the people, no children, no heirs.
Wow. Yeah. But it's interesting because one of the ways that the church doesn't flourish now is because the priesthood can't marry, so there's no succession. Whereas the Anglican church, because it's allowed the ordination of women, it's actually flourishing more because it's recruiting better. But I think it is so fascinating, you know, these ideals, this idea that, you know, from the crux of creation, this twofold message that Eve, the first mother of all living, you know, came second in time, but also history and consequently in status as well. And just the fact that these ideas are still so present in our society today. Very, very strongly. But one of the other characters who's involved in the Adam and Eve story you mentioned earlier is Lilith. Because and in a way, if you're looking at Lilith, you can see how Eve was being defined by contrast, because Lilith was a figure actually in Judaic legend and law more than in Christian, I mean, but has nevertheless persisted into still very much alive she is. She was a demoness from antiquity, very much attested in sort of pots and talismanic bowls in Persia, and you know, she's a very ancient, powerful goddess. And she was identified with the death of children, and by one of those curious principles that obtains in almost all supernatural events, someone who is identified with the loss can be invoked to protect against that loss. So, for example, the patron saint of dentistry, St. Apollonia, oh, wow. had all her teeth pulled out. So because she lost her, all her teeth when she was tortured for not renouncing Christianity, she was a female martyr. But because she lost all her teeth, she becomes the patron saint of dentists and people suffering from toothache too. So you pray to her if you have toothache. That principle is the same with Lilith. If you're having a baby and you're really worried about protecting your baby, this was a much, much more prevalent terror in the past. It's really dangerous to have childbirth. So it was very important for people to find ways of feeling protected or actually gaining protection, not that this would be very efficient. So Lilith, who was identified as a demoness, jealous of Eve's capacity to bear children, having lost her own children, apparently. She was invoked on... There are marvellous things in the British Museum showing the inscriptions to her that were hung on cots to prevent her stealing the baby. Her crime had been that she was Adam's first wife. She grew up because of this double story of Eve in the Bible. So some commentators on the Bible believed that when it said, male and female created he them... The female part was Lilith. And Adam then was making love to her and she was lying underneath and she objected. And when he didn't want her to get on top of him, she flew away in a rage, screeching. And for that reason, she was turned into condemned as a demoness. And that's how she identified with these Mesopotamian goddesses who protected children and childbirth. She lasts until this day. I mean, she keeps on being revived by feminist artists and even by George MacDonald, the fairy tale writer in the Victorian period, wrote an amazing novel. And it's a sort of goddess-worshipping novel in which Lilith is a beautiful, powerful, witch-like creature. But it's so interesting, you know, you keep referring to this word describing her, which is demoness. And this idea that, I mean, for me, I associate that with sort of negativity, really. But that is also so interesting, this, how we frame these narratives. And actually, it, it wasn't until last year, in 2022, that I even knew that Lilith existed because of that fantastic Kiki Smith sculpture that was in the British Museum. That's right. The moment where she's flown away from Adam and is on the ceiling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, with those piercing nice. blue eyes. If, if anyone looks it up, and we did a podcast with Kiki Smith and we spoke about it, it's on the wall and actually the, and she's upside down and your eye height with her. 
Yes, yes. And it's for Kiki's own face. Yeah. So Kiki identifies with her. And Kiki's eyes, the color of her eyes. Kiki Smith has done a lot of female symbolic figures with whom she identifies, including Mary Magdalene, even the Virgin Mary. But, but what I find so fascinating, which is something that you've written about, and, and literally it sort of blew my mind when I was reading about it, <laughs> was this idea of subject matter and how Eve is subject matter, that she was created by God and man, Adam, which in a way mirrors how, I guess, definitely since the Renaissance and Western art history, women have been subject matter for male artists. Yes, and also the subject matter for male artists, but they weren't allowed their own subjectivity. That's what I got interested in with statues, is that when there was a statue of a man, it was usually of a person, usually a historical person, but sometimes a mythical person. But nevertheless, it was identified with a real person, active in the world, whereas women were actually not active in the world. They were usually personifications. They were abstract ideas like liberty, justice. I mean, in London, for example, we have justice on the Old Bailey, and Nelson on his column. But justice on the Old Bailey is not a person, not a judge, not a woman wielding justice. She's an abstract idea. So she's subject to the maker's imposition of meaning. She's not allowed to speak for herself. Whereas Nelson, historical figure, as it were, acted for himself in the world. That contrast holds very strongly across the board, actually. And it was one of the reasons that I wrote Monuments and Maidens, because I wanted... I call at the end of the book for women to get hold of the meaning of their own bodies and cite some of the artists who have done that, including Frida Kahlo. But I mean, this is so interesting as well, this idea that this consideration that women are these objects of desire and conditions of beauty. And in a way, as you also say, you know, a form of profound otherness that Simone de Beauvoir analysed so inspiringly as the condition of the second sex and this other Yes, and also there's an acceptance for a long time, even some women who express themselves, accept the ideas that are being pinned on them. So there's a performance of virtues. I mean, there's an acceptance. I think quite recently it's been turned around. People are no longer accepting the meanings. I think you see it very well in Modison Becker's self-portrait. She's a very good example because in some ways she's enacting maternity because she's showing us that she's pregnant but she's doing it as a nude but a nude that is more realist than most nudes so she's not an idealized nude so this is female nakedness this is female fruitfulness this is what you worship in the madonna the idea of you know this body is a womb is giving birth but actually i am here i inhabit this body this is me and of course, the painting is made all the more incredibly powerful because she died. And also the fact that she spent months studying in the Louvre with the Venus de Milo as well. And that figure, it's almost as though she's giving life to the Venus de Milo. Oh, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. So at different periods in the 20th century and a little bit in the 19th, there's a design in which the women artists perform the virtues that have been expected of women or the unruliness. That's more in the 20th century, where the unruliness that's pinned on women, the disobedience of Eve, is claimed and taken back and worn as a badge of honour by many, many artists and, of course, writers too. It's just so fascinating that, you know, if we go to the National Gallery or something, we so often see a very kind of single, 
idea of evil, especially someone like the Virgin Mary. We kind of have that default image in our head. I mean, I definitely do. Maybe it's just because I've grown up in London or I've been exposed to predominantly Western art history. But it's just so fascinating how that idea of the default, we almost sort of forget that there are so many different perspectives on this figure as well. I mean, Eve, in the period of the 16th century, Eve received some really, really misogynist treatments that are rather fascinating and powerful, like Hans Belden Green, who also did a lot of witches. He's a really marvellous sort of just-before-Dura painter, very, very technically skilled, and with a very twisted, dark imagination. So there's a famous painting of the devil giving Eve the apple, and Eve is sort of simpering with a very flirtatious look on her face. And very pleased at her wickedness. And the snake is wound around her wrist, I think, and she's gripping it very, very phallic. And then this figure of Adam, it's meant to be Adam, according to the art historians, but he looks decayed, flayed, decomposing skeleton. And that's what happens because of her disobedience. He will become, that's the prophecy of death that will be visited on human beings after she takes the apple. So that, I think, is the quintessence of the condemnation of Eve, that painting. But then, you know, you get Milton, who's actually very complicated. Philip Pullman, who rewrote Paradise Lost for his dark materials, he invokes this importance of the flesh, this value of the flesh that Milton put his finger on. Because there's a moment where the human says to the angels, we have this, and then he pinches his arm, we have flesh. And that's a good thing. So that's that's a massive change. But again, it sort of mirrors Eve's expulsion from the garden because in a way, we want reality. Yes. And also, there's a sort of strange way in which not only are women seen as subject and men as active, but in which men are seen as the default state and women seen as somehow more natural. I mean, it's a very, very strange tendency within the whole of Western culture that women are closer to nature. Though if you think about it, Each human being is just as close to nature as the next human being, or each lion is close to nature. I mean, what is the definition of nature that excludes men from it? And because women will largely give birth. And then socially, women's tasks were identified with the beginnings and ends of life. So they were midwives as well as mothers. At the end of life, they laid out the dead and also mourned across many cultures, many, many civilizations. So that idea that women were closer to the mysteries of life and death pertains very strongly. And that gives rise to another strand, a very important strand, in the negativity about women, which is that while they are powerful and therefore revered to some extent as fertility and the goddesses of fate in, in Greek mythology, they're also seen as somehow lesser, caught and degraded by their fleshliness. And and it's one of the reasons that education was denied to women. I mean, it's so interesting. I think it's Aristotle, this idea of the women, it's the mind and body problem and all sort of the body versus intellect and the kind of either or. And actually what's so important is that our mind is connected to our body and vice versa. And that shouldn't be an inherently masculine or feminine thing at all or any gender. It's a human thing. Aristotle is a very interesting case because his thinking is something that lends support to my way of looking at myth, which is that Aristotle is thought to be the empiricist compared to Plato. Plato is the mystic. And Aristotle wrote about you know, the generation of animals and he wrote a lot of natural history and 
But Aristotle thought that a menstruating woman looking in the mirror clouded it. He thought it clouded red if she looked in it. But he thought many things of that kind. So Aristotle is actually steeped in myth. I mean, steeped in it. This is one of the reasons that I really believe that we have to understand that we are ontologically formed by stories. He couldn't see what was in front of him because he was informed by preconceptions. So that's what we have to get at. I mean, he could only have just asked a female friend of his to look in a mirror and show him this <laughs> empirically to verify it. It's so interesting in the sense that, you know, it's been the problem with male artists as well in the sense that, again, stories haven't been told as truth. And so, you know, in the 20th century, we have this sort of burst of women's narratives or something. They're telling it from their perspective and it feels so modern, but it, it shouldn't because both stories have been around for millennia. But it's just the fact that they've been told from one aspect. And like you said, it's almost as though one gender has almost used their imagination to project onto the other gender. Exactly. That's completely fascinating. But also coming to the Greeks now, Athena, the goddess of war, wisdom and craft. I mean, tell us about her, because that's fascinating that also Athena, a goddess, is the goddess of war. Well, she's also the goddess of peace. Okay. And the olive tree is a sort of monument to the peace she brought to Athens. But Athena first interested me because she is one of the most popular iconographic forms of female statues. So her actual statue as Athena is on the um, Athenaeum Club, for example, which is a, was for a long time a gentleman's club only. That's an example of the very frequent contradiction between a female talisman or statue of Palladium and the actual social circumstances that she presides over. And nobody ever saw the contradiction. Nobody ever said, well, should we have a female statue when we don't let women in? But Athena is also the model for many, many other emblematic female representations because Britannia looks like Athena but basically she's an armed maiden and the armed maiden turns up in just numerous forms in caricatures too. I'm sure that probably some of our recent prime ministers but certainly Margaret Thatcher was often reproduced as an armed maiden because of her militant stance and, and her identification of herself with the nation. Yes. That's very strong. Well interestingly even with Theresa May's recent portrait has that sort of militant yes. Napoleonic stance as well. Yes, exactly. Which also brings to light this very interesting idea that do women have to be, in order to be taken seriously or powerful, have, do they have to look like a man as well? It's very difficult, but I think, I think socially one can say that the more women deny their womanliness, the more likely they are to be taken seriously. So what do I mean by womanliness? I mean what has been ascribed to women, which is more ability to negotiate, and some of this may have an actual basis in, as it were, psychological facts. I mean, that women are good at negotiating double situations or tricky situations. But when it comes to politics, they're not asked to do that. They're asked to prove that they are tougher than men. And actually, I think they're used as sort of human shields, if you like. They're put up because if they're being a tough woman, men with the same ideas can hide. I mean, I think that's the, the, both the Pretty Patel the last Home Secretary, and this one, Suella Braverman, are these forms of shields, that they are expressing the ideas of the men, but they can achieve more persuasiveness because there's a paradox that they are so tough. They are being tougher than one expected from their sex. And I think it's a question of the story 
influencing them. I mean, in the sense that they are responding to the expectation that they would be more open, more merciful, they would acknowledge their past. But because they precisely don't, that's showing how tough they are. Mm. So they are very effective instruments for this policy, paradoxically, because of the inversion of what one might describe to them, as it were, instinctively. It's very distressing. I mean, all the female politicians we've had in recent years have been like that. And I don't think that shows that women are like that. Because, no. uh, because actually the larger social experiments and show that women are better at negotiating and seeing both sides of the question and getting something done that's not necessarily a compromise, but moving in a better direction. But this is not happening in public politics. Yeah. Partly because of the forensic nature of our parliament. But but, but also this idea that Athena has this shield. I mean, is it because almost as though she oh. has to have something in addition? Oh, it's appalling. The, the story is so deeply, deeply, deeply. One of the major stories of our, our particular Western culture, that her shield is the aegis. It's a kind of leather cloak. And it's made from the flayed body of Medusa. And the center of the shield that she's wearing is, is the head of Medusa, which is emblazoned on her after Medusa has been decapitated by Perseus. And she takes the head because the head has the power to petrify, to turn people to stone. And it retains that power, I think, in, in death. But anyway, she has it as an emblem on her aegis because it shows how conquering of these unruly forces that Medusa represents. Medusa, in a sense, is a, an earlier antediluvian kind of force, but a little bit like Lilith. She's a gorgon. So she belongs to the monstrous antecedents of the Olympians. The Olympians are anthropomorphic gods. They're made like human beings. But before them, it's imagined that there's a whole generation, multitude of monsters. I mean, they call them monsters, who are hybrids and snakes and dragons and you know typhon and centaurs and things like that so they're all wonderful fantastic richness of imagination but nevertheless their conquest is important they are mostly subdued by the anthropomorphic olympians and the death of medusa is a sort of paradigm of that and so her head bristling with snakes again it's that serpent yes. iconography as well which yes. is fascinating the snake is very widespread in the world I mean, partly that we, a lot of Christianity and Judaism, etc., and Islam come from that part of the world where this monstrous imagination flourished. So what are present-day Iraq and Iran? And, and the snake's ability to slough its skin and be renewed seems to have really, really caught the imaginations of our forebears because you could see it, as it were, seeming to die, and then its skin came off, and then it emerged new, new-minted. Mm. So this was greatly envied, this power, by people who were wrestling with decrepitude. <laughs> they, longed, they longed to be able to do the same thing. I mean, there was a lot of writing in the 19th century about such you know, serpent symbolism. And now we are less universalist about these things. But certainly the snake's power to resurrect itself made it an emblem of knowledge. And in the case of Christianity, this knowledge was seen as perverse. Mm. So Athena represents the male power of the state. It's very strange. But it's all a kind of huge enactment of the subjugation of what is seen as the natural unruly powers that are subterranean and unpredictable and not classical and not serene and not ordered. 
So the, it's actually enacted in the way in, in the Parthenon. I mean, you have this geometry, I mean, brilliant geometry of proportion, harmony, solidity, and that all the things we think of as classical. Mm. And then underneath, apparently, that's where the furies are kept, writhing with their snaky limbs. And there was a marvelous production by Peter Hall at the National Theatre in the 80s, where it was masked like a Greek tragedy. And the Furies came on, and they were absolutely sort of dreams of women and the monstrous regiment of women, the, the unruly hordes, horrible, subversive, every, everything that now women want to be. Mm. So Athena's passage from being the goddess of peace and the goddess of the loom, making clothes... Oh, like when, sewing when, and everything. Yes, yeah. when but the Pan-Athenaic Festival was held every year, the offerings that the women, the maidens brought to the temple were the clothes for the statue that they had woven. Beautiful stoles, really. So she was identified with these gentle arts of peace. And she was also identified with the olive tree and with the owl. So none of this really marks her out as a battling virago upholding the state. But she was gradually co-opted. The power that was invested in her by people's imagination was gradually co-opted to represent the stability of the state, the authority of the state, and the subjection of any subversive elements personified by the Furies. And they were identified mostly with non-virgin women. And all this has been very, very influential. It runs through culture and, and has been only recently questioned and overturned. Yes, I mean, coming back to this idea of the politicians as well, would would you say that the sort of story of Athena, this idea of the shield, is almost masking the fact that there is this higher power, which is the patriarchy? I mean, if you think of the difference between the way Aphrodite is being represented and the way Athena has been represented, you can see that these splits still exist. Aphrodite is a, a beloved figure, if you like, but she's entirely erotic and there's no political dimension to her except derogatory. The idea of an erotic prime minister, male also, but to some extent they can get away with it, as we saw with Boris Johnson, even though he didn't get away with it completely at the end, but he nevertheless got away with it up to the end because people sort of sniggered about his children that he didn't know the number of. Think of that as a woman. Would that be possible? No. I mean, no woman could have an erotic life and being for the public eye, an erotic life that was as ramshackle as Boris Johnson's. So there's a split between the rectitude of Athena, her hardness and so forth, and the, the soft dangers of, of Aphrodite. I mean, it's interesting because also when we think of women, especially in women in stories or I guess more 20th and 21st century movies or Hollywood or something, you know, women have also sort of played that role of being the Aphrodite or being the Virgin or actually being something that's not sort of multifaceted or multitudinous. It's very much the kind of version or the whole. Yes. Interestingly, some of the writing of the old Hollywood movies was more complex. So some of the screwball comedies, so something like um, The Front Page with some of the actresses like Catherine Hepburn, and they were quite complicated. And, and interestingly, there was a lot of misogyny, of course, and there was a lot of stereotyping. But nevertheless... I mean, the repartee, the wit, there's nothing like that now in the cinema. It's very strange that there was this point when you could write complicated, witty repartee for women. Sharp and, yeah. 
And how do you think myths and fairy tales, what, why do you think they're relevant for today? Well, I think it goes back to this point I was making that we are living in a, in a narrative without us knowing it. And the point is we need to wake up to what narrative it is we are in and how we want to continue it. Do we want to stay with it or do we want to challenge it? I mean, I think this is what you know, a lot of the artists you've written about have done, is that they've recognised that they're in a certain mindset, they're caught in a certain context, and they've tried to rebel against that. I mean, actually, I think Yoko Ono is a really extraordinary artist, and she, in a way, she was very, very subversive and I mean, quite capricious and witty. So I, I think she's underrated, but perhaps she'll come back like so many others have come back. So I've been interested in, because I think that you know, a lot of these plots repeat themselves in life. And also we have ways of looking at it that are determined by these structures. I mean, the royal family is really, really fraught with it. I mean, Diana is seen as a sort of, you know, tragic victim of, you know, I mean, it's just very hard to look at the reality of their characters, partly because the mystique of royalty itself masks that. But it's also the case that we don't have ways out of the plot. So I think it's important to know these stories and see how they operate and then try and work out another way of doing it. Just to give an example, before the pandemic, I was working with refugees in Sicily. And the idea is to make stories with them, but not to use the dominant story, which is the idea of the helpless migrant arriving and being utterly dependent and bereft. Because actually, when I met them, they complained about this, interestingly. They said that it was impossible to give an interview to a local newspaper or to any newspaper and find what they had said reported. What had happened in the story, as reported, was that they were utter wretches. They weren't abject, actually. They're kind of strong characters. They've done this amazing journey. And a lot of them, actually, are rather proud they've achieved it. Yes. They wanted to reach Europe and train to do something. And they've achieved it. So this is very contrary to the dominant narrative that is completely taken hold. That also comes back to this idea of the need for the humanities as well. It sort of opens up this idea of questioning, looking beyond. Actually, as I, as I was saying that, I was thinking of the scene in, in the Odyssey when Odysseus lands completely caked in salt, naked from a shipwreck on the beach. And Nausicaa is there. And she welcomes him. He covers himself up. He sort of hides from her because he's naked. And she doesn't sort of shriek and run from him because the whole concept that is probably an ideal that wasn't carried out in practice, but nevertheless it's an ideal in Greek literature, that the fugitive, the vagrant, the, the refugee, the, the migrant should be welcomed. It was a law, an absolutely principle of society that the stranger was a blessing I mean, I know it sounds utopian and not very practical, but I think if we could change our values and we could see that the good in this idea, this Greek idea, that we owe it to our mirror doubles, the person we might be, to expect their potential rather than imagine they're just a drag and a drain. And a, I mean, they're turned, of course, into that because they're not allowed to work, they're not allowed to do anything. So they have to sit in a hotel. And it's also the way that the politicians, those in power, treat them and also the media treat them as well. Yeah, that's the overarching mythological tale about these people who fled wars and famine and climate change. And, and also just the fact that they're the other. It's not at all. We are all humans. 
that's another sort of mythological thing that's changed in the record, which is that if you read Augustine, he doesn't mention race. He came from North Africa. He was born in an oasis village in the middle of Libya somewhere. He doesn't mention race. So what color was about Augustine? It's not of interest to him. And it wasn't of interest to the people around him then. Extraordinary to us. It seems sort of absolutely hardwired that we should be completely fascinated by everybody's identity. Mm. But this is also so interesting, the fact that, you know, I think we're living in such a sort of time of reckoning now in a really positive way. Obviously, it's not a negative thing, but in terms of sort of uh, progressiveness, I hope, I mean, I know it's going backwards in a lot of ways, but I hope going forwards. It's this idea that actually this culture existed, you know, millennia ago as well. Yes, absolutely. But I like very much something that Cornel West said, which is he said, I'm not an optimist, but I'm a prisoner of hope. Yes. <laughs> I like that very much. I feel exactly like that. I'm not an optimist at all anymore, but I'm still a prisoner of hope. Yes. Perfect. Marina Warner, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Marina Warner. I am just in awe of all of her work, her writing and her words. And as always, I have linked all of her books in the show notes, which I urge you all to look up. She is a complete hero of mine. Thank you so much to the sound editor, Nada Smanelic. And thank you also for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Katie Hessel.